1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Nora Young. Welcome to a brand new season of Spark. The 17th, in fact. And a lot has changed since 2007. A lot's changed since 7 o'clock last night. The pace of technological advancement is by turns exhilarating and exhausting. And as we look to the year ahead of us, there's plenty to chew on the rise of generative AI, the security of our personal data, the impact of tech on our planet, and the increasing problem of tech overuse. This season, we'll tackle all that and more, but today, in light of the EU's new Digital Services Act, we look at what life could be like...
1: ...in a world where algorithms no longer decide what we see online. ...reigning
2: in the power of the tech giants and the almighty algorithm. But we start with a bit of personal reflection. Back at the end of June, we dedicated a whole show to exploring the consequences of our online content addiction. We even issued a summertime challenge to you and to ourselves. I said I would swap in a walk around the block instead of endlessly scrolling cute cat reels. And did I? sort of? I guess? I saw how being out in nature helps me keep away from mindlessly scrolling on my phone, but in the summer, on holidays, I naturally spend tons of time outside, so I didn't really put it to the test, like what happens when I'm indoors surrounded by screens. So let's see how I do this fall. On that same episode, I also asked Spark Senior Producer Michelle Parisi to look deep into her habits. Remember when we used to just go to bed and fall asleep? That's my goal this summer, is to go to bed and fall asleep without looking at my phone. I'm proud of you, Michelle. (laughs) And should I still be proud? You're going to be very proud of me, Nora. I actually did keep my phone off most nights when I went to sleep. I just lay there till I fell asleep like it was 2003, and it was great. <laughs> Spark producer Sam Johannes also took a long, hard look at her digital habits.
3: My goal is to use my phone less and take less photos on my phone mm-hmm. before I would use my film camera a lot more. And so maybe now I should actually go back to doing that. I feel like there was a lot of joy that came out of doing those things that the iPhone kind of replaced. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so did Sam find joy in snapping analog pics on her old Yashica Electro 35 this summer? No, I didn't.
3: (laughs) I actually went on vacation over the summer and I packed my camera. But I had also recently purchased a new phone and the camera quality was just so good. So I didn't actually end up using the camera that i had packed and I ended up just sticking with the phone. But the intention is important. Sure, you keep telling yourself that. Okay, but... Why did we
2: have to challenge ourselves to do such basic and beneficial things in the first place? Taking a walk, falling asleep at night, doing an enjoyable hobby. It's not that we have no willpower, at least not only that. It's that powerful algorithms are at work in the shadows of digital platforms. Algorithms specifically designed to keep us scrolling, clicking, watching, and collecting fake coins. And that brings us to big news in tech. On August 25th, the Digital Services Act came into full force. Now, the Digital Services Act, or DSA, is a sweeping set of regulations put forth by the European Union. Tech giants are required to make a bunch of changes that will affect how users in the European Union get content online and how that content is moderated. Now, for now, the rules apply to VLOPS, very large online platforms with more than 45 million users in the EU. We're talking big familiar names, Facebook, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, Google Search. But as of February 2024, the DSA will also kick in for smaller tech companies.
4: There are all sorts of rules as part of it, but um, a lot of it has to do with transparency.
2: This is entrepreneur, author and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Julia Angwin.
4: So The idea is if, for instance, some content of yours gets removed, you should get an explanation of why and have an opportunity to dispute it, which is not the case for U.S. users. Also there's going to be much more enforcement of the rules that the EU wants in terms of what kind of speech is allowed and not allowed, and so if the platforms leave up some kind of hate speech that is illegal in the European Union, they will be sanctioned for it. And so there are multiple things that the DSA has I've just touched on. Like to highlight.
2: Like Julia says, there are a number of changes, but today we're going to focus on the requirement that tech platforms provide one version of European users' fees that isn't determined by tracking their past behavior.
4: There is going to be more kinds of choice. So Facebook will now have to offer you at least one algorithm that's not based on your behavior, meaning that it is actually usually that will end up looking like a chronological feed of just when people posted.
2: Instead of a feed based on kind of tracking your past behavior, like what you watched and what you engaged with, you just see a chronological feed or you have that option?
4: Yeah, I mean, the thing that um, I think we all learned from the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen, her body of documents that she released were really about the perils of optimizing for engagement. So essentially, if you think about her body of work as a, at a high level, almost everything that she was pointing out was about the fact that when these platforms are trying to decide what to show you first – they are basing it on what will keep you on the platform longest. So they're looking at what did you click at on at the past? What have other people found appealing? What, um, how long are you staying on a page when you click on it? And, um, and so all of those things are what they call engagement. And what we have found is these platforms, just because they optimize for engagement, are showing us more and more outrageous content, which is leading to this feeling that everyone has that it's like this unpleasant experience and we're feeling really polarized and the discourse feels really angry. And so one way to try to address that, the EU has decided to at least provide one other option. Now, the one option that the companies, that's easiest for them to offer is this chronological feed. The problem is... Chronological feeds are actually really not that enjoyable. So Mm -hmm. in some sense, to comply with the law, what I expect to happen, and you know, I don't know yet if they will all do this, but like what everyone sort of expects to happen, that there's always (laughs) one friend you have. Post 30 things in a row. Right. <laughs>
2: we all are that person.
4: Yeah. And so the problem is, whenever they're active, like you can't see anything else on your feed. And so there has to be another way where we can yeah. create our algorithms in some way that's not engagement, which is this outrage machine, and not chronology, which is just like volume wins. Right. And so, mm-hmm. what is the other third way?
2: Yeah, and I absolutely want to dig into what your thinking is in that area. But I did wonder, I believe some of these platforms are already starting to experiment with rolling out this option beyond the EU. Do you think there's likely to be pressure on all tech companies to kind of expand some type of non-algorithmic curation beyond the European Union?
4: I wasn't sure, you know, going into this, whether they might just say, look, let's just do it for the whole world because it's such a pain to cordon off the EU. But it looks like most of them have decided to go with like sort of a gated community for the EU. OK, <laughs> so it's not clear how much of that's going to roll out to the rest of us. That said, uh, there's a lot of innovation happening in the social media space right now. Right. So there's a lot of new platforms emerging. Facebook just came out with threads and there's Mastodon and there's Blue Sky. And so there's a lot of, of, of new platforms. Platforms trying new things. And so it's starting to look to me, like maybe the innovation is actually going to come a little bit from market competition, more than this regulatory approach.
2: Oh, I see. You've written about a number of problems with this kind of algorithmic feed on social media platforms. And one of your arguments is that the problem is the power that it gives to a few tech giants. Can you expand on that?
4: Yeah. So the thing is that if you think about your feed as like a newsstand, so I might be showing my age here, but back in in the day, (laughs) I used to go to an actual physical newsstand Yes, and there were like magazines and there were newspapers on it and you would pick which one you wanted. And it was pretty clear that, you know, some publications probably paid for like slightly better placement in the newsstand, but ultimately you were picking. And so if you think about these algorithmic feeds as essentially a newsstand it's it's more than just news magazines it's also your grandma it's a letter from your grandma Mm -hmm. and it's your friends but it's actually just sort of a collection of information from people that you want to hear from and the weird thing about it is that we've given them the power to like literally never show you your grandma's thing right like they they i mean i guess technically it's not that they would never show it, but they can put it so low, right? That you would just never get there, right? And this is what they call shadow banning or downranking or demoting content. And it's a strategy and it's it's sometimes used as punishment, but also it's just like, if if your grandma's not writing things that like trigger the engagement algorithm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you just might not see it that often. Yeah, And that's a weird power to give to a private company, which is like, take away my agency and my choice of what I can see, right? If I go to the library and get whatever book I want, they're not going to hide some from me just because like they're not engaging. And so we've given these companies this power to control what news we see, what friends we hear from. And so even if you assume they're the best actors in the world and like PS, I feel like we have some evidence that they're not, this isn't a power you would want to give to a private company Mm -hmm. without some sort of like, Process where you could control it, right? Where you could say, no, I want, I literally just want a button, like give me more of my grandmother and less of, of, you know, this, right? I have this experience with my son who watches a lot of YouTube and the suggested ones are often things I don't want him to see, like, you know, fake news and this and that. And I don't have a way. I, I go in and I click on this thing, like, I don't like this, don't show me videos like this in the future. And yet they continue to show up. And so, There's no user agency where you can say, like, I want my newsstand to have this kind of publications and not that kind.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about the impacts of the Digital Services Act, sweeping regulations from the EU, which will affect what European users see online. In particular, that big tech platforms need to provide a feed that isn't algorithmically curated. Based on tracking users, my guest right now is Pulitzer Prize-winning tech journalist Julia Angwin. I mean, is part of the problem just the lack of transparency in this? I mean, it's it's one thing to say, "Oh, I'm not seeing posts from my grandma," but it's another thing if you you know you don't know whether, for example, you're not seeing certain types of political content.
4: Absolutely, the transparency is so much of it. Right, the fact is, we don't even know what our news feeds are curated for, right? Like, I would just like to know, like, what have they decided about me? And what are they giving me? And then can I adjust the dials, right? You know, so for instance, there's some ad settings that you can do this with. So you can go into Facebook or Google, and actually, it will say, like, here's what we've decided to tell advertisers about you, like you're interested in, you know, tractors and, you know, Farm equipment or whatever, and then you can be like no guys i 'm really not, I just want puppies, you know yeah. <laughs> and then you can, and you can actually say that, but you can only do that for advertising you can 't do that for your news algorithm, which is actually the main reason you 're there like actually, the advertising is just some annoying thing you 're trying to avoid anyway, mm-hmm. so like the effort involved in tuning that also feels kind of like unrewarding,
2: yeah, I mean tech companies will sometimes say they do this to give users content that better meets their needs and their interests, but do they have other reasons for wanting to target feeds and say this is the kind of thing that julia wants to see versus this is the kind of thing that nora wants to see
4: well they want you to stay on the platform right they want you to be there because every minute you're there you can see another ad and they can make more money so like that is the one and only goal that they mm. have <laughs> now I will say, though, that I think you can see from Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter that sometimes people who run these things also have a political agenda, right? He very clearly stated that he thought the kind of content that was like being promoted on Twitter wasn't what he liked, and he wanted to promote other kinds of content. So he literally had a political agenda of what he wanted to do, and it makes sense. If these platforms have this incredible power – They are going to attract people who want to use that power, right? And so it makes sense that, like, he has been explicit about his political agenda, but it's, you know, it's entirely likely that anyone running one of these platforms would be, like, would be tempted by the power to do whatever you want. I remember um long ago Eric Schmidt saying, you know, when he ran Google, he was like we know that we could actually just destroy the stock market overnight, but we decided not to. Or something, right. you know, <laughs> something like that. Right. And like, you know, that power's got to be intoxicating. Like I don't really know what it's like, but it seemed like he was pretty excited about it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, still, you know, algorithmic curation—the sort of for you uh, way that we explore uh, social media now—it certainly makes things easier for users. Do you think people will have an appetite to curate their own feeds to be more active in in determining what they see?
4: Oh, absolutely! Like, so one thing I want to say is, I do really think algorithmic curation is necessary. Given the amount of volume of content that's out there, it's actually really hard to curate your own and make all those decisions. And so I am not actually arguing, I don't actually believe that anyone wants to live in the chronological timeline anymore, or maybe some people do, but not so many. And I do think that people want it to be easy. But I'm not alone in feeling that almost everybody feels like, they have some power and they're hiding stuff for me, right? Like this is true on both the left and the right, right? They all mm-hmm. feel aggrieved that our stuff isn't getting <laughs> promoted. Right. Yeah. And so to me that argues for more transparency is needed and more control. And I think that like, it's not likely that everyone will utilize that control, but having experimented with blue sky, which is this social network I'm using these days that actually has these choice of feeds. I find it actually pretty easy. And they say about 20% of their 600,000 users are using it. And so I feel like, okay, not everyone will immediately adopt it. But it's actually just really nice to have that choice.
2: Mm-hmm. I must say, I find it interesting that there's still such an interest in in Substack and and just the humble email newsletter, which, you know, we remember from the 1990s. So people obviously have an interest in that kind of opting in to choose what they're seeing and reading.
4: Absolutely. And I think that's what's great about our media landscape right now is that kind of whatever niche you're in, you can find. And I think sometimes these algorithms are really great at helping you discover content. So for instance, TikTok has really won the discovery battle. Like their algorithm is so good at helping you discover content in that you would probably not have found. And so that's great. That's a great use of that algorithm. But the thing that I would like is then once I've discovered it to be able to sort of lock it in place, mm-hmm. it's not that we don't want the algorithm we're just be able to turn the dial a little bit.
2: I've been speaking with investigative journalist, Julia Angwin. We'll hear more from her in a little bit.
1: I don't believe that cats are actually the most important,
0: greatest thing on the internet.
2: Hold on now.
3: You're listening to Spark.
2: Spark.
0: Spark. From CBC Radio.
2: I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about the Digital Services Act, or DSA, new rules in the European Union for tech giants. In particular, that European users are given the option to see a feed of content not shaped by personalization algorithms.
0: First of all, I just have to say I'm thrilled that this act has come online. I think it's long overdue. I think we need it in other places beyond the EU. I am Ted Streyfus, the author of Algorithmic Culture Before the Internet and the department chair of Media Studies in the College of Media, Communication and Information at the University of Colorado Boulder, USA.
2: We do exercise some control over what we read and look at online, of course. We sign up for newsletters, we choose who to follow, we can stay off a social media platform entirely. But there's no doubt we're living in a society where personalization that's shaped by tech companies is the name of the game. Where, as Ted puts it, we're living in algorithmic culture.
0: You know, I think the issue here is a question of choice. I mean, you know, the digital world has become in some ways coincident with the world. It's where people live their lives. And I think to the extent that that has become such a significant site of investment, we need to have options, right? We don't live in a one-size-fits-all culture, right? Not everybody has to buy the same size shirt or the same pair of pants, And yet that's the expectation that you see in the world of online search and recommendations, right? That though there is ostensible personalization, it's not the kind of personalization where people have meaningful choice, at least until the DSA. And so the DSA arrives at such a a critical moment, I think, not only for digital culture, but for culture more broadly.
2: Yeah. How much of a role do you think choice plays when we're talking about the adoption of new technologies?
0: I mean, there's a famous line from a scholar of technology named uh, Raymond Williams, and he says that any moment of new technology is a moment of choice, which I think is a really sort of profound statement. But for me, the, the question about the profundity is who has the choice? You know, I mean, we we increasingly are um, locked into digital platforms and digital services. And so it makes it difficult as a kind of consumer or user of these uh, different platforms, whether it's Google or Meta, or X Twitter, or whatever it happens to be, you know, to, to be able to say, this is how I want my experience on this site to be shaped, that mm-hmm. those decisions are made largely for us. And so, If the moment of new technology is a moment of choice, until something like the DSA, there wasn't really much meaningful choice on the part of individual users. And now we're beginning to see that.
2: Mm -hmm. Beyond the idea of choice, how much of a problem do you think it is that these systems are so opaque about what, what the rationale for what you're being shown is?
0: Yeah, it is it is a significant problem, but it's it's difficult in ways that maybe we don't fully appreciate or realize. I mean, there is this kind of assumption that, well, if we could only sort of like peel back the paper on the algorithm, everything would be exposed and we'd understand how the world was sort of working, you know, at least online. And, you know, I don't think it's as simple as that.
2: I mean, I guess you could argue that the creation of culture has long been kind of opaque and sort of concealed. The power behind it. I mean, for a long time, we were just sort of told what the culture was.
0: No, this is such a critical insight. And I think this is one of the reasons why when we talk about digital technology, we have to draw those deeper links back to the past. Because, you know, for for decades, for centuries, you know, culture has been in many ways, a kind of uh, exclusive sort of provenance of, of elite groups, right? So, you know, who got to choose what the particular items were that showed up in the museum or you know who you know we love the librarians but you know until recently who was making the choices about which books you know showed up in the libraries or you know any sort of other of uh, similar kind of situations and so i think this is this is the sort of critical moment that we're facing do we want to repeat the past right do we want to continue on a path Where cultural institutions and the practice of curation continues to be shrouded in mystery, Mm. the sort of opportunity given only to elites who happen to command a great deal of capital or social or technological power, or do we want to create systems that that try to do better by people, right? To open up the conversation of culture rather than to continue to close it down.
2: So you've been working with this idea of algorithmic culture for some time. Can you dig into a little bit what you mean by that?
0: So I define it as the use of computational processes to sort, classify, and prioritize people, places, objects, and ideas. But then there's a kind of feedback loop, right? So then it's the habits or the repertoires of thought conduct and expression that flow from and back into those processes, right? So it's this kind of weird circularity where we are constantly interacting with these algorithmic systems. They are absorbing our data into them, right? Of course, they are constantly Mm. surveying everything that we do and say and search for. And then those patterns and those processes get sort of reincorporated into the systems, which in many ways produce those kinds of filter bubble feedback effects that result in us seeing more and more of the same. And so it's an increasingly prevalent phenomenon. I used to talk about this 10 years ago, and people would look at me with a kind of, you know, bewildered face and have no idea what I was talking about. And now the experience has become so common and palpable in in our everyday lives that uh, I think it's something that folks relate to very easily now.
2: Hmm. I feel a bit silly asking this, but just to clarify, when we talk about culture, like, do we mean that process of categorizing and naming people, ideas? objects. Is that is that what we mean by culture?
0: Yeah, no. Well, culture is 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 a multifaceted term. Uh, a scholar once described it as one of the two or three most complicated words in the English language. <laughs> so, when we get into those definitional questions, we're in we're in pretty murky territory. Okay. But you know, there there are at least a couple of ways of thinking about culture, right? So, culture is the kind of way of life in a particular place that you happen to visit, right? The sort of vibe, the practices, the customs, the unstated stuff, right? That that's part of it. But another aspect of culture is what's referred to as selective tradition. Right. So up until the digital age, there was always that question of, well, there's only so much you can store and only so much you can know, whether it's, you know, knowledge or literature or art or what have you. So what do you shed? what falls by the wayside, and what is the stuff that you transmit on to future generations, Mm. right? And so that question of selection and selectivity and curation and transmission across generations has historically been one of the most uh, central aspects of culture as an idea, and also then one of the most vexing parts, right? Because who is it that gets to decide what's the stuff that carries on and what's the stuff that gets left behind?
2: Yeah. It seems like we went from algorithms serving up our culture to us to shaping it, right? Just to use an everyday example, if TikTok serves up a particular video, and then that becomes a dominant cultural artifact, is it in some ways making culture?
0: Absolutely. I mean, this is also one of the oddities of the moment in which we're living. I think there was a a strong argument to be made uh, uh, until recently about how different industrial t- tools were used as a kind of instrument for human beings to produce culture, right? So that they were our tools and we were sort of producing cultural goods, artifacts, movies, music, whatever by virtue of them. But the point that you're, you're speaking to, Nora, I think is exactly what is unique about our present moment. Yeah. And that is the extent to which we see not just algorithmic curation, but really algorithmic creation right, that there is significantly a kind of computational hand, and what up until recently was considered to be the very human work of culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see this, I mean, this is, I think, part and parcel of the meltdown over generative AI, right, that we are using increasingly, you know, sort of algorithmic systems to train these creative sort of uh, AI devices, which in turn are then producing art and music Mm. and any number of different things that are, you know, if not quite on par with what a human being could produce very, very close. And I think within the next five to 10 years, they're going to be indistinguishable. So what does it mean then when the stuff that was human, you know, culture suddenly becomes also something that machines can produce?
2: What does it mean? <laughs> I mean, I was just about to ask you that we do have things like chat GPT literally creating culture. Like what what does that mean?
0: Well, it means, if nothing else, that you have fundamentally changed the definition of culture, right? Mm. One of the ideas of culture is that it's long been, uh, uh, again, to sort of quote that scholar I mentioned earlier, Raymond Williams, a court of human appeal, right? That this is the framework that human beings use to make judgments about the stuff that is supposed to be considered important or worth transmitting to future generations or unimportant, right? That it is a set of human created criteria rather than define, uh, divine criteria. To define what is, you know, supposed to be true or beautiful or good or worthy. Um, You know, and increasingly, we have machines that are doing that and machines that are also producing that very stuff. So not just making the decisions about what gets transmitted, but also producing the very artifacts that could potentially Mm. be transmitted. And so I think this is really one of the critical stakes that a lot of people miss right now. And it's that the very idea of culture itself is changing, right, that it is no longer exclusively a human provenance, but that it does now have a significant component that is machinic.
2: And then perhaps you have the potential of machine culture then being used to train later models of generative AI.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's it's not to say that human beings are getting sidelined from culture, Mm. but I think the arrangements of power and authority that have long sort of been understood to be how culture functions, they have to be completely rethought in light of things like generative AI and algorithmic decision making more generally.
2: Ted Strieffus is the author of the new book Algorithmic Culture Before the Internet. He'll be back in a little bit with a surprising pre internet history of algorithms in culture.
1: From the Spark Archives, 2014. Academic and writer Zeynep Tuğteçgi.
3: The algorithm knows what it already knows, right? It's been given some parameters and it's functioning within those parameters. Whereas the people I follow, they bring together a wealth of knowledge and judgment and human experience. So when something that the algorithm would have no idea how to recognize as important happens, my friends on Twitter or my friends on Facebook are actually able to say, wait, this is important. Whereas the algorithm is a lot more predictable and flat and kind of monotonous compared to my friends who can find more unexpected, interesting things using their human judgment, the knowledge of human affairs, which a computer program can do a lot of things, but you know, you can't have all the knowledge that human beings have. So they have limits, functional limits, because they know what they know from the past. And they also have commercial limits because they're tailored towards the advertising medium, which I think is a pity given how important digital connections have become both to our personal and civic lives. Mm
0: -hmm. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Café with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Café with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Café. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're looking at life after personalization algorithms. As you probably know, you don't just see whatever everyone you follow posts on social media. Instead, what you're served up depends on the type of content you've engaged with before, what kinds of content is performing well on a platform, and so on, in a process of algorithmic curation that's not very transparent. Well, the EU has new rules in place requiring tech platforms to provide at least one option for a content feed that doesn't do all this. So far, it seems like that means just showing users a chronological feed of everything. For now, this only applies to the major tech giants and to European users. But maybe it should apply to all of us. Earlier, we heard from journalist and entrepreneur Julia Angwin. She thinks the EU's Digital Services Act is one step in rethinking how we curate online content. So what other solutions would she like to see as an alternative to tracking-based curation?
4: If you talk to anyone in the trust and safety field, which is really the people who have to keep all the bad stuff off these platforms, they will tell you that, the more algorithms there are, the more choice there is, the harder it is to make these decisions because a lot of the decisions they're making are like, okay, here's some like really what they call lawful, but awful content, right? So we don't, we can't ban it, but it's so gross and nobody wants to see it. So they will try to quote downrank it in the algorithm. But if there's 20 algorithms or if I'm tuning my dial for awful, then it makes it harder for them to have consistent decision-making and to also be accountable for those decisions, right? So they can't really say, oh, I turned it off if everyone's sort of like building their own algorithm, especially because a lot of the proposals about Algorithmic choice have to do with allowing third parties to build algorithms on top of these platforms, or they involve like these federated social media entities like Mastodon where there's multiple servers, each one run by a different administrator with different trust and safety rules. So when you get into these kind of broad situations where there's multiple people, and it's much more decentralized, decentralized things are harder to control. (laughs) And their job is honestly to control, right, the bad stuff. And so it does sometimes make controlling the bad stuff harder. Mm -hmm. But I guess the thing I would say is, I'm not doing such a great job right now. Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Fair.
2: So so let's talk a bit about alternatives. Like, What would you like to see as an alternative to either just the straight chronological firehose on the one hand, or the tracking based curation? Is there some model that shows promise for you?
4: Well, so the thing that I've been really liking is this blue sky model where they do allow third party developers to build custom algorithms. For instance, I like one called tech news. So I just click on it. I see all the tech news. It means that I don't need to follow all the tech news outlets because I don't actually want them all the time in my feed. But I do want to just check it once or twice a day and just be like, okay, I'm making sure I'm on top of tech news. And so it kind of saves me from the burden of having to follow those accounts, but allows me to dip in when I want to. And similarly, there's one called like cute puppies or whatever that I dip into. because I'm like, whenever I need a cute puppy, I know they're (laughs) definitely there for me. I don't have to wait for it to show up in my feed. And so I really like this idea that they've been given access to the firehose as I understand it of all the posts. And then they search that. I think they find the puppy post, but it's based on the content, not on the account, right? The model that we've all been told is that like the way we control our algorithms, we choose different accounts. Yes. So you choose to follow a certain account because you like that type of content. And there's two problems with that. One, as we've all experienced it locks you into a certain persona. Like once you have an account that people expect a certain thing from, it's kind of hard to do anything else because people get mad at you. This is like, this is my experience as a tech journalist. Like I basically can't write about anything other than tech, tech stuff because you know, that's what people were following me for. And so it locks you, the creator into this thing. And then also like, it means your feed is very static, right? So you yes. have, you follow some people, but you don't discover that much unless you go into the entirely wild world of TikTok where it's all discovery, but you have no ability to, like, bring it back to, like, consistency, right? And so we set these really far apart poles, this I have to choose to be, quote, like, friends with you, which is, like, a really big commitment, like, I don't know, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> do we have to, to get this close? Right. <laughs> right. right. And, and the wild thing of, of TikTok, where you might discover something and then literally never see it again, so it's, like, mm-hmm. all one-night stands, and so it just feels like there needs to be a middle ground, and for me, I think that, like, this idea of just having these curated feeds where you can just choose them is that middle ground,
2: But so just to be clear, who's doing the curation in that case?
4: So, I mean, I think there's two ways that could happen, right? One is that the platform, because of trust and safety, really wants to build them all themselves. And they build one called the awful. Here's your deplorables feed. And here's your like progressive feed. And here's your whatever. I haven't seen anyone who's done that. And I don't know whether they would want the liability, because I think once you start labeling things like that yourself, like, you know, so I think a better model is allowing third parties to do it, right? So you open up your fire hose through some sort of like, you know, with privacy protections, but allow some sort of access and developers can build off of it. And that's obviously easier on the one on the platforms that have chosen to be open source and stuff like that. So Mastodon and Blue Sky, these newer ones have much more open protocols. They call it that allow developers to interface with them easier, but it could be done on the other platforms too. Twitter was experimenting with it before Elon Musk bought it. And they were looking at like having third parties really come in and sort of build these different kinds of feeds for people.
2: Mm-hmm. So, is there a role for, I guess, individual curators or even like Coalition of Canadian Librarians curators or or that kind of thing?
4: Yeah, totally. I would, first of all, love a librarian curated because <laughs> who, wouldn't? who are experts in information management, right? Like, they, you know, so they're like, this is their field. So, I would love to be able to tap their expertise. Um, I also think it'd be really fun to have individuals, you know, like, Neil Gaiman, the author, is, like, super active on those guys' social media network that I'm on right now. And I would just like his feet. I'm like, I want to just, whatever he's following, like, I'll have what he's having. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> and so I think that there's certain people who are really, like, just good at building an interesting collection of people to follow. And I'd like to piggyback off of their thing, too. So yeah. I think there's, like, lots of ways that this could play out. It's kind of time We're kind of, you know, 10... 15 years into social media. And I think you can tell by the all the rise of competition. So people are looking for for new ways to engage with this.
2: Yeah. I mean, as you suggested, Blue Sky, uh, Mastodon had this sort of decentralized structure, uh, Meta's Threads also promised as a more sort of federated structure. Do you think that beyond the idea of algorithm curation, this sort of more decentralized notion of a social network could just extend more broadly?
4: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea. And I think we'll have to see how it plays out. I I do have sympathy for the trust and safety folks who say, like, look, it really, once it gets too big, it's going to be really hard to scale and you're going to end up with really awful content. And so I don't want to dismiss that. It, it's an important consideration. But I think that the Federation is not necessarily the only answer, right? Like, I still think this can be done on a single large platform, too, there's really no reason that these companies couldn't just offer a couple different options. Yeah, I think that for me, what I think is most um, empowering about this model of choosing your algorithm is this idea that even if you choose the default, knowing that there are choices, it changes the your own mental model. So people who are choosing to live in this world that is like, just a filter bubble of some kind. Knowing that they've made that choice and seeing that there are other options is itself educational.
2: Mm-hmm. Julia, thanks so much for your insights on this.
4: Thank you. This is great. I really love talking about this stuff, as you can tell.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Not everyone who can make it funny, as well. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I try. <laughs> right.
2: Julia Angwin is an investigative journalist and the founder of the nonprofit newsroom, The Markup.
1: These algorithms, as much as you might call them smart or machine learning or neural networks, there's very fancy words to talk about. They're actually very, very dumb. From the Spark Archives, 2019. John Cheney Lippold, author of We Are Data. I think it's also a really good idea to not see algorithms as anything other than protocols of understanding the world. If we think about what maps are, maps are themselves somewhat of a limitation of what is and is not in the world, so... If you look at a map, you know, there are many roads that are not represented on the Hmm. map. There are many things that aren't. So we have an abstracted quality to these experiences with knowledge. And so algorithms are just another sequence of these experiences with knowledge. The problem with algorithms, though, is that they are written in such a way that you don't have access to the back end. A lot of people talk about the black box society. And so this is a problem that's not in, its not like we shouldn't use algorithms, but it presents us with a different relationship to the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an asymmetry of power. They have all the power, you have little. I think it's really useful to think about how the life that we live is often not the life that we want to live. So. In my book, I talk about, you know, I am, uh, identify as a man, but Google thinks I'm a woman. I'm also, I'm in my 30s, but Google thinks I'm 65 years old. <laughs> and so these ideas are, yeah, they're, they're, they're fun ways of, of understanding the distinction between how a Google algorithm thinks of me and how I understand myself within structures of power. And the idea being is that Google wants to follow who I am, not necessarily as how I identify as a political subject, but as a consumption pattern. So in that way, uh, Google's wrong, but it's also right because my behaviors do fit within the patterns of what a 65 year old woman is. At the same time though, I think that we have to always say that these ideas of misrecognition happen outside the online world. I know a lot of trans and non-binary folks deal with this every day, that who they are is definitely distinct from who people think they are at times. Mm -hmm. And that it's really a, a battle to figure out, you know, who controls the knowledges of the world and who controls how we're seen. And I think part of the problem with what I call algorithmic identity or what a problem with the entire profiling worldview is, is that they're trying to figure out who you are on terms of them or terms for them, useful for them, for profit, for control, for state security, whatever. And so at at, at the heart of it, what we're seeing is actually a robbery of our own subjectivity, a robbery Mm -hmm. of us to be able to define who we are, but also what kind of groups that we're in.
2: Nora Young, and you're listening to Spark on CBC Radio. We're talking about the limitations of personalization algorithms and possible alternatives. Earlier in the show, we heard from Ted Streefus. Hey, Nora. His new book is called Algorithmic Culture Before the Internet. As you may have guessed, it's chock full of stories that take place before the internet, like a lot before.
0: You know, most of the time when folks are talking about the history of the word algorithm, they go back to the figure for whom algorithm is named, which is a mathematician by the name of Muhammad Ibn Yusay al khwarizmi He lived and worked in the ninth century, chiefly in Baghdad. Now, the thing you need to know about him more than anything, though, is uh, not only was he a polymath, but he was actually part of an ethnic minority that was living and working in Baghdad at the time. The Khwarezmanian population was actually a subjugated people who lived to the east of what is now present-day Iraq. His work comes to be known in the English language chiefly through um, a mathematics textbook that he publishes. He's one of the first people to popularize the techniques of algebra. And so this is a book that winds its way into the English language through uh, a translation movement, what was known as British Orientalism or English Orientalism at the end of the 19th century. And they translate the work of Al-Khwarizmi with no regard whatsoever for the fact that he was a member of a subjugated population and not paying a whole lot of attention to what he was saying Uh, in the book on mathematics because it wasn't just a kind of x plus y equals, you know, z sort of a thing. Um, What Al khwarizmi was trying to do was to figure out the principles of algebra by virtue of mapping kinship structures in the world that he was seeing. And it was a world that had polygamy. It was a world where enslavement was a part of the everyday life of people. And yet it's really telling that the folks who translated this book had absolutely nothing to say about those uh, broader questions about how mathematics was being used to map really sort of difficult and problematic kinship structures uh, that were part and parcel of the everyday life of Al uh and the work that he was doing. And so it's a tragic history, it's a complicated history, and it's a fascinating history because it shows us the ways in which algorithms, the word itself, and the practices and the technologies that we have today are in many ways drawing a very direct line from longstanding practices of human subjugation and colonialism.
2: And so when you look at that, colonial history, are there ways that you can see the construction of culture as bound up with the history of political power and the history of colonialism?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the the example that I end the book with is the Cambridge Analytica affair, you know, which is that sort of moment right around 2016, when it became abundantly clear how Cambridge Analytica had inappropriately scraped data from Facebook, as a way of trying to sort of intervene in the US presidential election and UK Brexit vote.
3: Why should we trust Facebook to make the
1: necessary changes to ensure user privacy and give people a clearer picture of your privacy policies? We have made a lot of mistakes in running the company, but I'm committed to getting this right.
0: Now, the story that is known but less often told is that they prototyped the systems that they were going to use in Trinidad and Tobago, right, Mm -hmm. which is a country with a very complicated colonial history, where there are black and indigenous and actually Indian populations, all sort of competing for resources. And again, if you know anything about the history of Trinidad and Tobago, it's a history of colonial conquest, where those different populations were pitted against each other historically. By white colonizers, right? And that those patterns and those tensions continue to this day, right? And so the idea was for Cambridge Analytica, how can we use uh, algorithms and targeted advertisements to essentially foment political unrest among those populations as a way of getting the people that we wanted elected, elected, right? Now, does that sound familiar at all? Yes, that's exactly what happens with the U.K. Brexit vote and then the 2016 presidential election in the United States, right?
2: Brexit, for some, a lifelong dream, now backed by millions.
3: Victory for ordinary people, decent people. It's a victory against the big merchant banks, against the big businesses and against big politics. And so what we
0: see here is a kind of, in in a different form, the past repeating itself, right, that we see elites, right, typically white elites located in the global north, using the algorithm, right, as a way in which to sort of uh, impose a certain set of political and cultural relations on populations that don't have a great deal of meaningful say in the direction of their own lives.
2: Mm -hmm. The chronological part of your book ends in the mid 70s. So how did Algorithmic culture take off with the rise of digital
0: yeah, the argument of the book is that there had to be a great deal of linguistic change, right change to the semantics of the very word culture in order for it to occur to people in the final quarter of the twentieth century, right to folks who had found Google and facebook and and other entities like that right? That it took semantic work in order for the technological transformation to eventually take place, right? That if we think about culture as this kind of quintessentially human thing, right? It's the way that human beings organize the patterns of our lives. It's human kinship. It's the stuff that people make, right? Mm -hmm. How did it ever occur to people then to say, okay, well, culture should be the stuff that, computers make, and that (laughs) computers make the decisions about, (laughs) and that they should be the ones choosing how we connect to other people, right? That kinship structure I was just talking about, right? And so the book ends at 1975 with a kind of argument showing how up until that point, right, that meaning of culture had shifted to make it more amenable, to make it more agreeable to that sort of computational understanding. Mm -hmm. But of course, we know in 1975, there were very few computers in the world, right? Most of them were not networked. There wasn't the kind of processing power that we had today. And so there was a kind of semantic capacity in place, but the technological reality had yet to catch up to it. And it's only 25, 30 years later that that technological capability is in place so that we can implement the idea of algorithmic culture in code Mm. and technology.
2: Mm. You know, Ted, one of my favorite things about An earlier era of internet culture, prior to the rise of these sort of giant content platforms, especially, is how culture seemed to arise sort of spontaneously online from the bottom up, you know, memes being an obvious example of that. Is that era just over? Or are there ways that we can think about kind of democratizing algorithmic culture again?
0: No, it's, it's a really important question because I think in some ways when you, you go down the rabbit hole of algorithmic culture, and especially when you go down the even deeper rabbit hole of generative AI, it's really easy to get to the place where it seems like There is sort of no more room for, for people, right? Mm -hmm. That, that the machines have taken over and we are just subjects of the robot overlords. (laughs) You know, and that's one of the things that I insist on again and again, that that is not the case at all, right? That this is not about the complete sort of replacement of, of human beings by machines, but rather it is a moment in which we have to share the stage. And so I think the really meaningful questions that we have to ask right now are all about the ways in which we're going to share the stage with these generative AI systems. But what that also tells me then is that memes and the kinds of things that have made the internet fun and spontaneous and, and organic, they're not going to go away, right? Mm. That human beings are still going to be posting their silly cat videos online and, you know, whatever it happens to be that, that you know, just continues to to put a smile on our face or to bring us joy or to remind us that we are people making a weird little dent in the universe, culturally speaking. But the conditions have changed too. And we do have to share that stage, we do have to share that spotlight. And so figuring out what that means moving forward, that's where the critical questions lie.
2: Yeah. And so is there a way of thinking of a healthier way of constructing and debating culture than either relying on the algorithms of a small number of tech platforms on the one hand, or say relying on a small human elite? Just solve the problem of culture for me, Ted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, no problem. Piece of cake. Well, I mean, I think, you know, a couple of things have to happen. You know, so I'm reminded, for example, of the the early internet, right? And how difficult it was to construct a web page, right? You'd have to know HTML and, you know, you'd have to be proficient in in any number of different kinds of things, even just to kind of get online, right? And we have, by and large, solved those kinds of problems, right? So it's relatively easy to design a website, you know, you can use it using, you know, sort of prefab blocks of code or different kinds of drag and drop services and those kinds of things. And the future that I imagine, in part, is a future in which we might be able to construct algorithms similarly, right? So that you don't need a profound and deep and abiding technological proficiency in order to create these kinds of systems. So that's certainly one solution, right? To make it easier for people to be able to create these kinds of systems of curation that they could then share and tweak and modify And that's the other component for me that I think is critical, too, is a kind of prevailing ethos where we share these kinds of things, right? Where they are open, where we can modify them, right? It's the whole idea of free culture from about Mm. 20 years ago that was very popular, where there was this idea of remixing and circulating rather than closing down and propertizing, right? And I think in many ways, that really has to be fundamental to culture, recognizing, of course, the boundaries of that, right? So, for example, there are lots of indigenous communities that have sacred knowledge that are not supposed to be publicly circulated, right? That's a boundary that we have to respect when we're thinking about these questions of openness. And also then why I don't think we should be totally open and moving forward with these kinds of um, different types of systems. But that to me is absolutely critical. Ultimately, this idea that we need to create systems that are more accessible to people so that they too can participate in the active curation of digital culture.
3: Mm.
2: Ted, thanks so much for your insights on this.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Nora. Always a great time to talk to you.
2: Ted Streyfus is the author of the new book, Algorithmic Culture Before the Internet. He's also chair of the Department of Media Studies at the College of Media, Communication and Information, University of Colorado at Boulder. So far, the European Union has really taken the lead in regulating the tech giants and in bringing some transparency for users. But there are other signs that there's a shift in the climate. September 12th marks the beginning of a major antitrust case in the States, U.S. et al. versus Google. The federal government is taking on Google in what's considered to be the first major case of its kind since Microsoft in 1998. We'll keep our eyes on that. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samir Johannes, Samir Chabra, and me, Nora Young, and by Julia Angwin and Ted Streefus, and from the Spark archives, Zeynep Tufekci and John Cheney lippold Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.